welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Benjamin Edwards, Associate Professor of Law and Director of the Investor Protection Clinic at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, William S. Boyd School of Law. We will discuss his new article, Adversarial Failure, which will be published in the Washington and Lee Law Review. So welcome on the show as a guest, Ben. Of course, you're a frequent co-host of the program as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, glad to Glad to join you as a guest to talk about the paper. Yeah. So this is a really cool paper that primarily focuses in the paper, like the substance of the, of the paper on investor protection. But it struck me that it kind of has bigger implications as well for thinking about the adversary process and how we can improve it. So I wonder if later in the show, maybe we can, we can kind of generalize from some of the observations that you make here. Uh, but I, but I was thinking that yeah, I was thinking that just by way of launching off the discussion, you could maybe talk a little bit about the nature of the business you're actually talking about regulating, because not everyone may know or be entirely familiar with how the financial services industry works. So, you know, what kinds of financial services professionals are we talking about and what do they actually do? So we're talking about stockbrokers in this paper. And when I, when I say stockbroker, um, you, there's, these, are, these are registered representatives that are affiliated with uh, broker-dealer firms. You know many of their names, uh, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, uh, any of these uh, you know, big ones. Um, you, if you saw Wolf of Wall Street, uh, Stratton Oakmont was a broker-dealer firm. So the, the, the basic issue is that many, many people will need help with you know, making investments, managing their retirement. And so they go out and they, they try to work with a financial advisor. And the hard thing is that the term financial advisor itself is very vague. Uh, one category of financial advisor is a broker who may also be you know, duly registered as an investment advisor. Uh, they may you know, be an insurance representative. But you know, what I'm focusing in on is the stockbroker piece of this. Well, so your your reference to Stratton Oakmont might already begin to suggest the answer to this question to some degree. But like, what kind of problems can arise here? Because your your paper is mostly focused on kind of breakdowns in this re representation relationship. When do those kinds of breakdowns or those 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 issues arise, and what tends to cause them? The, the first thing that happens that that people don't understand. So there've been there's been survey after survey confirming that Americans have no clue how this system operates. And it's also not how it works in Australia or the United Kingdom. We're a little bit different. People who call themselves financial advisors oftentimes operate like used car salesmen. Uh, they are essentially trying to sell the product that pays the biggest commission. And so long as it is suitable under the current rules, uh, they're generally able you know, to get away. With suitable, essentially all it really means is that it has to be a decent fit for the person's situation. So the, the big conflict right off the bat is that the broker gets paid more to sell a customer a product that probably isn't as good. 
Yeah, I mean, you gave an example of the variable annuity products, which was pretty amusing. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what those are and why they're a good example for the kind of problem that you're discussing. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so variable annuities have been a problem for a long time. Uh, you have uh, so so essentially the product uh, is it's a it's a hybrid product. It's a mixture of uh, securities uh, and insurance and it tends uh, to significantly underperform uh, just buying an index fund because it has all these high fees. Now, the high fees come with a number of bells and whistles. You have the ability to annuitize theoretically at some point in the future and convert whatever you know, amounts inside the policy into a, a payment stream. The broker who sells a variable annuity and you know associated riders, contract provisions, and other you know, things with it is generally going to make one of the fattest commissions uh, you can make. So they're going to collect six, seven percent. So, so this is this is a a pretty significant kaching for the register because most of the time when people are, are putting assets into these kinds of products, they're moving significant amounts of money. So if you are, um, you know, retiring after you know thirty years of working, and let's say you've got. $300,000 in your 401k and you're looking to, to move into you know, a different phase, a broker who sells you a product like this could, could net 20 grand right off the bat. Well, so what kind of tools are available for consumers to avoid misleading kind of uh, broker pitches or bad or dishonest brokers? And, and how might those tools actually work? So there, there are an enormous number of resources um, for being able to, to suss out how, how good somebody really is. Uh, one, one tool that we recommend is broker check and it's incredibly important. So if you, if you just Google broker check, you can find it. If you have a financial advisor, pull them up, type their name in and you want to look to see if there are any disclosures. So these are red dots that show up on the website and each disclosure it's something you, you probably you want to be nervous about. The more disclosures that a broker has, uh, the more likely it is that you're going to have a problem with them in the future. So the, the, the research here, you know, the, the more disclosures you see, the more nervous you want to be. So the disclosures can be things like bankruptcies, uh, but most often it's past customer complaints. So if customers have complained about a broker in the past, there's a decent chance you're going to have a problem in the future. So it's almost a little bit like a version of like Yelp for brokers or something? A little bit, yes. So it's, it's, it's a little bit like Yelp, uh, only – so BrokerCheck is this, this website that allows you to see uh, a partial picture about a stockbroker. Now, what's, what's, what's neat about it is it's drawing from this other database called the Central Registration Depository. And this database and I are about the same age. Uh, and it, it consolidated a bunch of uh, you know, state regulatory you know, licensing systems into one centralized database. So all the states use the CRD. And BrokerCheck will show you uh, a slice of the information that's available inside this here. It doesn't give you everything, but it shows you a lot of information. Uh, so another way you could get more information if you if you see something or you, you don't think it's something, you can, you can file a freedom of information request with a state. Uh, Florida, you can actually do this with an email. 
uh, you just email Florida and you ask for a CRD report from a particular person or you know, about a particular person. And if they're registered in Florida, they'll just usually send it back to you within a couple of days. Uh, and there's not usually any fee. It's a PDF. It's very easy to do. And oftentimes you will see really significant disclosures that aren't in the broker check. Well, so the initial problem I would be concerned about is whether some or all of the individuals potentially looking to hire a broker will actually know about or have the kind of sophistication to check their backgrounds in in the first place. But then the second problem kind of motivating a lot of your paper is it sounds like the information included in these databases might not be necessarily quite as comprehensive as you might initially expect it to be. Oh, no, this, it, this is where it is. It is just wild. Uh, so much information has been deleted from this database through an expungement process that it's, it's no longer you're very reliable. So you, you still want to be nervous if you see somebody that have, having complaints. But if you don't see any complaints, it doesn't mean that nobody has complained or that a complaint hasn't been there in the past. Uh, Colleen Hannesberg at Stanford did this amazing paper uh, where she collected a lot of data uh, and found that brokers who have won expungements are actually three times as dangerous as a broker who has, uh, you know, this is just an average broker. So essentially, the brokers who have succeeded in having information deleted are much, much riskier. So, so you might be wondering, well, well, if they've had the information deleted, how do you know about it? Uh, and, and the answer is, well, there's yet another database. So there is a, a database managed by FINRA, the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, that contains all of its arbitration awards. And that arbitration award database will reveal uh, when a broker has received uh, an arbitration order recommending that a complaint be expunged or deleted from the CRD. They then take that arbitration award and go uh, to court, get it confirmed, give it to FINRA, and FINRA will go ahead and delete the information from the database. So, so, it, so if you're if you're nervous, you you want to go to FINRA arbitration awards, uh, just Google it or Arbit FINRA arbitration award database, uh, and you want to search the person's name there too, uh, because if there's a clean broker check, it doesn't mean that the person has never had complaints. Okay, so then problem solved, right, Ben? I mean, uh, consumers can just go to broker check and then check it against the CRD and then check the CRD against the FINRA database and no problem, right? The information readily accessible to the relevant consumers, right? Uh, it, so it's still not accessible. So, so what, you can, what you can do is you can tell that, uh, that that information has been deleted but you can't necessarily tell what it was. Um, you know, for example, there's there's one broker I feature in the paper, uh, Mr. Van Winkle. Uh, he had 24 different customer complaints uh, removed. Many of these apparently also involved settlements. So these were disputes that they settled, uh, and you can't see how much money they paid out. Uh, it's, it's hard for you to really evaluate. All you can find out is that there were 24 disputes uh, removed from his record. Well, so why do we have this expungement process in the first place? I mean, if a complaint is being filed, isn't that relevant information to consumers? Why shouldn't all these complaints appear 
in these customer databases to help people understand, you know, who they're hiring. So the the whole the whole system is overseen uh, by the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and it is a essentially a trade association uh, of broker dealer firms with some you know, with with a majority public governors uh, on its board. Uh, long story short, uh, brokers uh, were concerned that uh, you know people who complain about them uh, may say things that are false, and they wanted a way to challenge these complaints. Uh, about them. And ultimately what we ended up with was a process that is skewed heavily uh, in the, the broker's favor. And so this is a way to challenge incorrect, false, possibly defamatory information. But the way the process has been calibrated, uh, they, they win an overwhelming number uh, of their you know, attempts to expunge information. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a kind of type one, type two inclusive, over-inclusive, under-inclusive type problem where they're responding to a concern that there might be, you know, incorrect information, but maybe one of the consequences of correcting that problem is going too far in the other direction. Right. Right. Well, you could, you could almost, you could almost analogize it to uh, concerns about voter fraud that, uh, you know, if you're concerned that, you know, there's some theoretical risk of voter fraud, Maybe what you want is to require everyone to uh, provide their birth certificate, an affidavit, all these other you know, things. But what you really would just end up doing is suppressing the vote. Uh, so your your actual solution for this problem really just sort of skews the outcomes. Well, maybe you could just briefly describe how the process works kind of in the wild, as it were, just so people have a sense of why it is that it sort of seems heavily weighted in favor of uh, expungement rather than preservation. So, so this is this is a sort of a, a dense forest, uh, and let me put you in the shoes of a stockbroker who has a complaint on the record that they do not like and they want to challenge. Uh, at the outset, they have two choices: they could either go directly to court and try to get a court to order that the information be expunged, or they could go to arbitration and try to get an arbitrator to make particular findings that the complaint was false or they weren't involved in it, and then go get it confirmed in court. So in that first choice, most brokers tend to go uh, to arbitration because some courts simply won't do it. Uh, some will dismiss for lack of you know, jurisdiction. Um, and sometimes FINRA will, if you sue FINRA as a defendant, uh, will actually defend. Um, so if you go to arbitration, then, well, you have, you have, again, there's a couple of routes you can end up before an arbitrator arguing that something should be expunged. Uh, one way is if a, a customer has sued you and you, you say you, you settle the case, you could ask for an expungement hearing at that point. Uh, and that's the one way you know, brokers will get there. Another way, and this is what's been happening uh, for years now, and it, it's, this, is the, this has become the preferred path, and we're seeing an exploding number of these, is the broker will wait and then turn and sue their current or former employer uh, on the theory that uh, they're the ones who reported the information to the database. And because of that, they should be the proper defendants here. And so you sue your employer and you, you bring this arbitration claim against them and you seek uh, maybe a dollar in damages uh, to keep the, the fees low and this relief. 
So at that point, you're arguing before an arbitrator against your employer. Now, your employer has an interest, generally speaking, in you having a clean record. Because if you have a clean record, it's easier for you to bring in customers and you know, then they'll make more money. Uh, and if you have a clean record, they're not going to face as much difficulty when FINRA comes around or the SEC takes a look at their operations. And so the, the broker who's, who's bringing the case and the defendant, they don't really have uh, you know, any different interest here. And, and what we see in the, the awards is that at 98% of the time, uh, the, the defendant in these expungement-only cases does not oppose uh, the request for an expungement. So it's sort of a gimme for for the broker then. It's sort of an end run around any kind of kind of meaningful factual evaluation of whether or not the complaint is valid or, or invalid. So there, there's, there are some modest checks on this. Um, you know, FINRA now requires, uh, this, this hasn't, hasn't issued a rule of this yet, but it has guidance. It tells its arbitrators that uh, they have to make the broker who's requesting this notify the customer and tell them about the hearing so that the customer can participate if they want. Now, the hearing is essentially to determine whether or not the customer's a liar and <laughs> whether the information the customer provided was false. But the, the tricky thing is the customer, you know, Unless, you know, spiteful or has has enormous resources, probably doesn't want to participate because they already know not to trust that particular broker. And participating is just time and hassle. They usually only get maybe 30 days or less of notice uh, before before the hearing. And the, the, the kind of notice they get, you know, it, it just generally stresses that one of the one of the things that they can do is not participate. They have no need to participate. And most of the time, customers simply don't participate. So generally, you have um, you know, a broker making a case to an arbitrator uh, with against a, you know, a defendant who either takes no position or supports the request and no contrary voice ever gets raised. Hmm. So we have a severe Nudnik shortage in the financial services regulation sector. Yeah, there's just no no adversary. Well, so in the paper, you talk about this as an instance of adversarial failure, which is kind of an analogy to a somewhat better known concept of market failure. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the nature of those two concepts, why you think they're related to each other, and how this works as an example of adversarial failure. Of course, of course. So, so we think about market failure. It's, it's a situation where you know, markets are, are reaching uh, or generating outcomes which uh, strike us as you know, inefficient or unfair or being driven by, you know, the market forces simply aren't working uh, like you normally would expect them to. So there, there's some very common reasons for this one. Your pretty well known one is information asymmetry that markets will not function well if one party, to, you know, one, one half of the market is really well informed and the other half of the market uh, has no idea what's going on. And so information asymmetry can cause uh, markets you know, not to function well. So when I, when I talk about adversarial failure, it's, it's really hard to know 
whether or not an adversarial process has uh, reached the right conclusion. Uh, and so you, did the jury get it right? Did the judge get it right? Did it get it wrong? That's, that's, that's often really hard to know. But one of the things you can you know, look at it from is, is, is whether or not they're reaching any kind of informed decision. If they had the information before them uh, that they would need to make an informed decision, uh, then it's, tough to, it's really tough to second guess uh, the ultimate decision they make. And so what we're seeing you know, here is that there is there's no incentive to put information and there's no obligation oftentimes to put information before the arbitrator. And you know, because of this, they're, they're locked into making these uninformed decisions. But why is it that arbitrators in these cases wouldn't insist on having more information and digging into the facts in order to make you know, more accurate and better supported decisions? I mean, isn't that their job? No, uh, it's, it's, it's not really. Their, I mean, in some sense, it is their job. Uh, they're, they're called to render a decision, but that's not how they, they see themselves. They, they don't tend to operate as independent inquisitors uh, looking to develop more information. Uh, at the most, generally, arbitrators can ask the parties to provide more information. They can ask for more information. They can't do any independent investigation. Uh, the the training materials for arbitrators instruct them not to do any independent research. Uh, so you know, in terms of reaching out, contacting people, uh, you know, doing these other things, uh, it's simply not going to happen. Well, I mean, what if anything then could we do to improve the kind of accuracy uh, in the system by reducing the error rate? I mean, are there, do we need an entire kind of rethinking of how the process works or are there sort of potentially more granular changes that might generate improvements in the efficiency of the adversarial process in this context? So my, my preference, uh, and after looking at this great detail, would be to just take it entirely out of an adversarial process, take it out of arbitration. Uh, it, it doesn't make sense to do it the way that we do it. Um, you know, doing it before some sort of a well-constituted you know, committee with investigative powers might might be a much better solution. I, I show the example of, of gaming regulation. Uh, you know, if you apply for a license to operate a casino in Nevada, uh, they're going to investigate you, and they, they may require you to pay the fees associated with the investigation. They can hire counsel. They can do any number of things in order to make sure they get the information that they need. Now, there's nothing like that for arbitrators uh, right now in terms of being able to do this. So so my preference would be to to shift it entirely outside of arbitration. But if we're going to leave this inside the adversarial process, one way to deal with it might be just to go ahead and adjust the attorney ethics rules for this situation. So essentially... These hearings, even though there is a technical adversary on the other side, they are essentially, in, in substance, ex parte hearings. So the ethics rules tell us that in these kinds of situations, lawyers have an obligation to be completely candid and make full disclosures. Generally, a lawyer doesn't have to volunteer information that might not help their client's case. You know, you can expect that the other side will dig it up and bring it out. But as we stand right now, you know, there is no real other side in these cases, 
And so an ethical obligation to make the attorneys involved in this disclose more might be helpful. Uh, changes in how we deliver notice and adjust the process. There are lots of more little granular things we could do, but uh, you know, ultimately the, the real solution is, is going to be for this particular problem, it's going to be moving it outside an adversarial process. Um, if we leave it inside an adversarial process, we really need to change the rules for how they operate. Well, I mean, it seemed to me that from reading the paper, that at least one of the reasons we see what you term adversarial adversarial failure in this context is that it almost seems like the process is kind of like the facsimile of an adversarial relationship without the reality. Yeah, no, it, it is. Um, it's theater, largely. Uh, so, so in one instance, um, I had um, I saw an expungement where the broker was suing his employer and the law firm that was representing the broker and the lawsuit against his current employer also represented the employer. Um, so you can, you can have a concurrent client conflict uh, and you can sue your own client if they waive it. You can't represent you know, both the broker and the employer at the same time in the same proceeding. But, you know, you, you, in some instances, you will see stuff like this where, you know, the attorney representing the broker also represents, um, you know, the, the defendant in other proceedings, which just tells you that the only reason this is, is happening is because, you know, the, the employer is OK uh, with being sued like this. Well, if I remember correctly, one of the examples you gave was even a broker suing his former employer in which he was, in effect, the principal. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, no. No, There's there's one of these guys. uh, He sued himself, in essence. So he uh, was a broker who owned a financial services firm, uh, and he brought suit against an entity he controls. (laughs) I mean, that's bound to be highly adversarial, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm sure he did a really good job holding himself accountable. <laughs> well, so, so Ben, I mean, one of the things that I found really interesting about this paper was that it suggested so many other kind of more abstract questions about how we think about the adversarial process, how to kind of test whether or not the adversarial process is or is easily capable of accomplishing the kind of purposes that we think it at least ideally can can achieve and sort of how to think about like potentially structuring these kinds of tribunals in a way that will be more successful rather than less successful. I wonder if you just have any kind of kind of bigger picture thoughts about sort of how writing this paper and thinking about expungement and the arbitration process surrounding it sort of has informed the way you think about kind of the adversarial process more broadly. So my, my view on it is pretty jaded at this point. I, 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 we expect an adversarial system to, to function well uh, when you have equally matched adversaries Uh, and that is only the case in the rarest of instances. Generally, there's going to be some disparity, you know, between them. Uh, and you, when, whenever the interests of the adversaries uh, begin to align, uh, you, you probably shouldn't have any confidence that the, the court or the adjudicator is, is really reaching a well-informed decision. Well, Ben, thanks so much for coming on the show today and 
just sharing this really excellent paper with us. I learned a lot from it. There were some amusing asides and uh, it definitely made me that much more skeptical about the prospect of, of hiring a broker uh, to handle my finances. Yeah. So, so if you, if you remember nothing else from this, um, what you should do is if you're looking at a financial advisor, make sure they're registered, check broker check. Uh, also check the FINRA award database to see whether or not they've had any expungements. If there's anything about them that makes you at all nervous, don't work with them. Yeah, good advice as always. Thanks a lot, Ben. Thank you. Thank you.